Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. Uh, today we're going to be talking about comic books. Today we're going to be talking about comic books. And it, it, it's a bit more broad than I normally do when it comes to chronology. Usually I focus on a particular uh, time period. However, you know, we talked about counterculture last week. Um, I, I think we're, we're going to do another, you know, these are not quite hippies. This is more of a counterculture which is a bit more in line with traditional American uh, capitalist norms, if you will. Uh, basically how comic books really get tied in with identity, and also they're very malleable. I, I will say that about comic books. They really do adapt with the various times. Uh, there are various times where comic books really talk to what's going on in America. And, it, it, you know, it starts out as something primarily for children, but then it really evolves into something that really can be viewed as part of one's identity. Um, an affiliation with a comic book. And we're, we're really going to kind of talk about that um, as we're getting to the end. Today's class is going to be covering from 1910-ish, 19, you know, turn of the century, to about the 1960s, uh, not getting too much into the 70s. So we're talking about a long period of time, mainly focusing, though, on about from 1939 to 1970. So that's about a 30-year period. So, like I said, give you a chance to go onto Moodle and get the PowerPoint for today. A comic book's funny man, Funnies Through Spider-Man. So, to begin with, there were the funnies. To begin with, there were the funnies. Uh, these are basically collections of newspaper comics. Uh, newspaper comics were kind of the end-all, be-all of cartoons or comics in this time period. Uh, they're very much done in the cartoon sense, drawn cartoons. Uh, they're typically daily. Uh, they very also much are very localized. Uh, most of your early uh, cartoons or your early comics, if you'd call them that, comic strips, uh, they were very much localized. You have political cartoons for, for much longer than you have this type of modern newspaper comics, but political cartoons have been around for forever. I mean, we've had political cartoons since the American Revolution. I mean, they've had them in Europe much longer the idea of using a cartoon to satirize has been around for quite a while. But the first big newspaper comic, if you will, if you go over one, is The Yellow Kid. Uh, the Yellow Kid comes out very early. Uh, we're talking like 1890s, uh, turn of the century, 1900. It's a bit more of a political cartoon than this actual comic. Um, I don't know if you can read. Uh, by the way, the, today's PowerPoint has a lot of samples of various cartoons and comics. But for instance, if you look at the Yellow Kid, um, you know he he does, he he rarely has uh, speech. Usually, it's it's written on his shirt, uh, very much done in dialect. Um, this is the first one that, like I said, it's a bit more political cartoon. Except he doesn't really represent a figure. He's more of like a, a satirist or almost like a Greek chorus, uh, talking about you know kind of giving commentary on the news of the day or just modern life. As I said, political cartoons are much older than cartoons or the the comics as we know them. Uh, the, the first comic strip, uh, modern comic strip, uh, is going to be the Cats and Jammer Kids. If you look over, that's the Cats and Jammer Kids, if you can go over one slide. Uh, based heavily upon German stereotypes, uh, a, lot of, a lot of very stereotypical humor going on in these early comic strips. Um, Cats and Jammer Kids is no uh, exception. This is the first real like gag-based comic strip, uh, pure comic strip. Uh, the Yellow Kid is a first, like, comic character, but he's a little bit more political cartoon. Um, it's not really a strip, per se. It's not really a serialized strip. 
Uh, the Cats and Jammer Kids are the first real cartoon strip, comic strip, if you would. Uh, it, it, it leans heavily into German stereotypes, uh, heavily, heavily into German stereotypes. And these early cartoons, I, I should mention, they're they're primarily a series of gags. Uh, there's really no underlying narrative, no story arcs per se. Um, sometimes the art does get a little bit more advanced. I mean, for instance, if you go over one, you will see Little Nemo in Slumberland. Uh, Little Nemo, as you can see with the art, it's very surrealist. It's basically, um, it's a story of a boy who goes to sleep every night, and he goes to this magical dream world, and pretty much the end of every comic is him waking up. Sometimes he's on the floor, that sort of thing. It takes a one-page, it's a one-pager. As you can see, the art is a bit more advanced than you might see somewhere else. And, and I, I should say, um... You know, if we're talking about the golden, golden age of comic strips, you know, turn of the century, 19-teens, 1920s, these were huge. Like, this was big money to be made in the newspaper comics. They're full page. They're full color. The art is just lush. Uh, some of these are, uh, cartoonists are becoming very well known. And um, it's, it's quite an impressive little thing for this time period. It's going to change, though. So the first comic books, all right? Comic books, you know, basically are collections of these strips. Uh, they're collections of these various newspaper strips, kind of the collections where if you went to the first slide, you'd see like things like The Funnies or The Funnies on Parade. Um, those are pretty much the first American comic books. They're collections of newspaper comics, uh, generally gags. Uh, because there's so many newspaper comics, um, they do not really... There's no, like, titled ones, if that makes sense. Like, it's not... You, you'd very rarely buy one of these co funny collections, and it's all, you know, just the Yellow Kid, or just the Cats and Jammer Kids, or just Little Nemo. It's generally a collection of a lot of different newspaper comics. And basically, the newspaper syndicates are okay with this, because it's, you know, it's very cheap. Uh, it's very much in line with the expectations of pulp novels and pulp magazine. I mean, they're called pulp because it's printed on very cheap material. But newspapers license these comic strips to the various, you know, funny book uh, makers. I should mention, rarely if ever are the comic book creators making the comics. Generally, they're getting them from newspapers, you know, who are only going to run them once. And so the artist has already gotten paid already. So it seems a way for the newspapers to make a little bit more money of it. And I should mention, these are called comics, uh, kind of regardless of content. Uh, they're called comics. I mean, the term comic, as opposed to tragic, generally means funny, like time. Likewise, the word funnies implies that they're funny. It is interesting that the term comic comes to mean everything, everything that, you know, the drawn art medium, uh, regardless of tone. You know, this, the term comic implies everything is humorous in tone. And I, I should mention that pulp novels and pulp magazines are much, much older than, than um, the modern comic books or... They're contemporary to newspapers, honestly. I mean, you've had the dime novel and pulp magazines, um, different pulp heroes that kind of come around for quite a long time before this. If you go over one slide, you're going to see kind of the beginning of the pulp comics. That comes in 1929. Uh, in 1929, some of the comic book creators, or basically, honestly, none of the comic book creators, some of the pulp magazine creators said, hey, comics are getting pretty, pretty popular. We should use some of our older pulp heroes to make comic books out of them. So you have things like Tarzan. Uh, the Tarzan books had been around for quite a while. Uh, by this time, um, they'd been well into the public domain. 
actually they don't have copyright or public domain right then. So you have like a lot of these people like writing Tarzan um, stories for these pulp novels, uh, you know, pulp dime dime novels, these pulp magazines. Uh, Buck Rogers is another one that's kind of a spaceman. Uh, they are turned into comic strips. They are turned into comic strips. Likewise, uh, they're joined by car- um, by cartoons like the Dick Tracy, Flash Gordon, and the Phantom. And these are very much the proto-comic book hero, uh, proto-superhero, if you will. The, the term superhero doesn't really exist yet. Uh, but the idea that, you know, these are these dime novel heroes, you know, think of something like Tarzan. Think of something like uh, Tarzan. That's probably the only one you're very familiar with is Tarzan. But Dick Tracy, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, you know, they're, they're these pulp heroes. They've been written about for a long time before in novels, in, you know, short stories that were not of the highest quality. I, I should mention that. And that's kind of the, the proto-idea for the superhero, if you will, is these dime novel characters. Now, comics are actually selling pretty well during the Depression. I, I should mention, comics are selling pretty well during the Depression. Um, it's seen as kids entertainment, primarily, and but it's one that's very cheap and obtainable. Uh, there's a when you talk about comics history, when you talk about like uh, comic criticism, which I'm not the most familiar with, but I've done a good bit of research on it. Uh, they talk quite a bit about how, for a lot of children, the first purchase they ever make, you know, the first thing they make with their own money, that's something that they have ownership over, is the comic book. Uh, that might be different nowadays because I'm not sure if. Comic books are really obtainable for children nowadays, but I remember whenever I was a kid, uh, probably one of the first things I ever bought was like a, a comics collection. Um, it, <laughs> I was not into superheroes when I was, ever I was a kid. I'm not going to talk about this character, but if you know it, uh, Archie was the one I was into. I was, I was, I was a kid who was really into Archie. Um, uh, that's the comic that Riverdale is based off of, except it's nothing at all like the show Riverdale. Riverdale's like sexy and murders and stuff. Archie Comics is just like... Kids in 1950s America just, you know, going to the mall shop for a date or something. And I should mention the comic book collections that do exist, the comic books that do exist, are primarily collections of newspaper comics with the occasional new gags drawn in. They're starting to do more, a little bit more than new gags. I used to start having them with the pulp heroes. They don't sell quite as well. Actually, they don't sell anywhere nearly close as well as the collection of the newspaper comics. Uh, newspaper comics are the real draw here. Newspaper comics are the, are the real draw. The real draw is the newspaper comics, uh, getting collections of newspaper comics. For most artists, they want to be involved in the newspaper comics. That's where the big money is. There's not too, too much money in these sort of uh, making comic books. And I, I should mention, like, Dick Tracy and Tarzan and stuff, they are, they are primarily newspaper comics as well. They're not comic book characters. They are newspaper comics. So if you go over one slide, you'll find out that, you know, there is a bit more demand for news stories outside of what had already been shown in newspapers. There is a little bit of a demand of it. Uh, some people say maybe, you know, we can use the book medium to tell longer stories, to tell... Um, you know, get, get a little bit more advanced here, tell news stories, stories that perhaps the newspapers wouldn't like too much, and we can get a little bit more gritty. We're not going to be just talking about, you know, gags and whatnot. Uh, and so 1935, a pulp magazine writer, if you go over one slide, you'll see him. His name is Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. He's a former Army guy. He was a former Army guy. Um, he, he, he really leaned upon that a lot with his publishing. 
Uh, he makes his own publishing outfit called National Allied Publishing. National Allied Publishing is what his what his publishing is called. And he kind of gets a team of freelance writers and artists who make original newspaper, sorry, who make original comics, which strongly, and I cannot iterate this enough, which strongly resemble the newspaper comics. Particularly the pulp comics. Particularly the pulp comics. You things like your Dick Tracy's and your Tarzan's and things. Um, I'm not going to call it plagiarism, but I'm not not going to call it plagiarism. Um, by all indications, uh, Wheeler Nicholson was kind of a jerk. Uh, he he really leaned upon his military service in World War One. It's 1935. He really leans upon his military service and this idea that he was an officer, uh, kind of to bully his freelancers and like not getting paid and stuff like that. Uh, the reason why he just doesn't publish newspaper comics is because the newspapers have actually gotten smart to this. Uh, they realize fairly quickly after the first funny books start coming out that there's money to be made here. And they were letting the funny publishers publish these newspaper comics for next to nothing because they're like, hey, we're just going to throw them out anyway. Uh, you know, if we, if we license them to these comic book people, maybe we can make a little bit of money off of them. Once they see how much money is being made from the comics they were going to throw away anyway because they already ran the newspaper, uh, the newspaper syndicates uh, got a little wise to it. They start raising their rates. Uh, they start saying, hey, we want more money out of this. And basically Nicholson, uh, sorry, Wheeler Nicholson says, you know what? I, I, I think I can probably do this a bit better by writing my own comics. Uh, now, the, the ironic thing is he is not very successful with his early comics. If you look at his first one right there, that's fun. Uh, the big comic magazine, go over to the front, uh, where it says Detective Comments. Likewise, Claws of the Red Dragon. That's just racist. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he's not very successful with his uh, original cartoons uh, because readers were not willing to spend money on unknown characters during the Great Depression. Uh, there's a sense that the, the comics that people want to buy, it's a sense of familiarity. They want characters that they know. They want ones they've seen in the newspaper. They're not too keen on getting brand new, you know, cartoons that you may not know about. Uh, he tries with a lot of different characters. He tries really hard, for instance, Jack Woods, who's pretty much like the Lone Ranger. Um, Claws of the Red Dragon. Actually, that's in the first DC comic, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, he's not very successful. He falls into debt. Uh, very quickly, and ultimately his distributor comes calling. His distributor comes calling. Uh, his distributors were two guys by the name of Harry Donafeld and Jack Leibowitz. And I should also mention that pretty much everybody in early comic books is Jewish. Um, strong Jew influence in early comic books, um, probably because it's centered around New York. A lot of different reasons, but uh, unless I tell you otherwise... Pretty much everybody involved in early comic books is Jewish. Pretty much everybody involved in comic books is Jewish. So Wheeler Nielsen gets bought out by Donafield and Leibowitz, uh, and then they release a new line of comics. So if you go over one, do you see where the picture of Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is? If you see on the right, Detective Comics is the one of the new lines they release. It becomes by far their biggest hit. Uh, their biggest hit, they, they're pushing away from the humorous, they go into the pulp magazine world, they do, like, Speed Saunders and the River Patrol, Buck Regan Spy, and ultimately Claws of the Dragon. Claws of the Dragon, you can see right there, that was on the front page as well. It's very much in this or Orientalism vein. Um, very much um, showing the, you know, Asia, and particularly, like, China, as, like, exotic and mystic, and 
very racist. I'm not going to put two and two together. It's the 1930s and they're talking about China, so it gets really racist really quick. Now, the comics themselves, in general, the com- oh yeah, I should also mention, uh, Detective Comics become so popular that pretty much it becomes the name of the company. They change their name from National Allied Publishing to Detective Comics, which gets shortened to DC. So, uh, DC Comics, you might have heard of them, they're pretty much the first comic book company that really is our first modern comic book company. Uh, the first one that does, like, Pulp Heroes. And I should mention, comics themselves, they're, they're of a middling success. Um, you know, DC Comics, it does okay, but it's not like a, a huge hit by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the company doesn't really have too many artists or writers on staff. Uh, generally, they outsource their work to outside studios and shops. Uh, there's a lot of these around New York, a lot of various like studios and shops that uh, do art for different things as well. It's not just comics. A lot of them do art for, you know newspapers and magazines and little political cartoons or illustrations for books. That's where the big money was seen to be. So the, the comics generally are made by a combination of writers and artists, and at this time it's very young artists. Um, very young artists who don't really have an established name. They're trying to, you know, get their, you know, cut their teeth in, in the industry. Uh, really trying to get a start. Uh, you also might have some more established artists who might come in who just need, quote-unquote, easy money. Um... Comics are not seen as high art. The art itself is done very simply, often viewed as very crudely. It's not very fancy by any stretch of the imagination, but if you need a you know an easy buck here or there, remember, it is the Depression. Um, cartoons were seen as a way to get it. Now, I should mention, it is not very prestigious and certainly not very high-paying. Uh, these publishers are pretty much using pseudonyms exclusively uh, to keep their staff anonymous because there is such a high turnover rate. Uh, turnover is just ridiculous in the early comic book rate in the early comic book world, I should say. Uh, there's really no sense of just like, hey, we're all going to stay here for a while. Um, you know, the artist or writer might stay for a month or two, and then they'll leave. So generally, it's it's all under pseudonyms, and the quality would vary immensely. Uh, the quality would vary immensely, pretty much from month to month. It would be dramatically different. Even though all the names were the same, it's because they're pseudonyms. So it's not a very high prestige job, I mentioned before. Uh, it was generally held as a little bit above pornography, just slightly above pornography in terms of respectability. Um, and at the time period, pornography was like seen as super smutty and dirty and not respectable at all. So if you're just one step above pornography in the 30s... Um, Nobody really wants to make a career of comics in this time period, or, or um, you know, comic books, I should say, in this time period. Uh, those who do want to get a career generally want to become newspaper comics. Those are the more um, prestigious jobs, uh, much better paying and much more stable. Or get into things like book illustrating. That was also seen as a very high prestige thing to do with art. Art itself was not viewed as low class, just comic books were viewed as low class. But there are others who want to get into this, and if you go over one slide, I'm not even going to hide it, uh, something changes about two years into uh, DC's run, which changes everything. Which changes everything. And that'd be two guys by the name of, if you go over one slide, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Uh, they're two, they're a couple of Jewish kids, they're from Cleveland, uh, they're interested in really nerdy stuff at the time. Uh, they're kind of your early nerds, uh, this whole idea of like, we're going to be nerdy people. Um, they, you know, they're, they're into science and technology and they're, you know, it's the early depression. 
you know, they grew up in the 20s. They're, like I said, a couple of Jewish kids from Cleveland. Their parents are fairly middle class. And they're interested, uh, particularly particularly uh, Siegel. Siegel is the writer. Schuster is more the artist. Uh, Siegel's very interested in, like, kind of writing, science fiction, that sort of thing. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, in 1933, he writes a story for a pulp magazine, which is called Reign of the Supermen. Uh, actually, Schuster illustrated it. Uh, very much in the vein of pulp stories. It's very much influenced by the Depression. It's basically this common man who's in this very poor part of town. Um, you know, some scientist gives him a magic potion. He turns into this like Superman, but his power loses it for a while. He tries to right the wrongs, that sort of thing. Uh, as I mentioned, very much in the vein of pulp stories. Super much, superly, <laughs> pardon the pun, in the vein of pulp stories. So they thought it had potential. They, they started to shop it around a little bit to various newspapers, like maybe this will become a regular serial. Um, there's really no interest in it. Likewise, they decided to make a cartoon, like a comic strip out of this. You know, basically they have a sample, a couple months worth of you know, comic strips for this, uh, this Superman character. Newspapers don't really care for it either. Likewise, they try with a lot of comic book shops. They're not really interested in it as well. They don't think there's really anything to be, you know, there's no... You know, they've already the comic book character. Sorry, comic book creators had already tried introducing new characters. Nobody seems to buy it. This is a type of character nobody's seen before. You know, things like cowboy stories and uh, detective stories were the things that sold. Not really this new hero who flies around in a cape. So they start doing a little bit of freelance work. Nothing too major. Uh, they start using quite a bit of pseudonyms. Uh, for instance, if you see for Reign of the Supermen. Uh, Siegel writes it under the pseudonym of Herbert H. Fine, Herbert S. Fine. Uh, that's his. That's his pseudonym. Or I guess trying to hide his Jew Jewishness of it. You can look at the, at, the, at the typeface of it. This is not a very well written thing by any case. But he's he's a kid when this is going on. However, you know they start working a little bit with DC, working a little with Detective Comics, and. Um, DC is about to launch a new line of comics called Action Comics. An associate of Donafeld, remember Donafeld was one of the guys who bought out DC, uh, works for the newspaper syndicate and says, hey, um, there's, this, there's, this, there's this couple of kids who, uh, made this new super, who made this new comic strip called Superman. Uh, you might be willing to use it for Action Comics. It might be something for it. So Donafeld asked to do if they'd be willing to cut and paste their sample strips into a 13-page comic book at the rate of $10 a page. And if you notice, if you go over one slide, you're going to see part of the original Superman comic. It is very much done in comic strip style. You can tell that basically every row would have been one day strip. Like seriously, it's always it's pretty much every every panel, you know, every row tells a story that is theoretically a complete thought because it was a pretty much a pilot for a newspaper strip. Basically, they wanted to put it in the newspaper. And he, Donafield offers them the rate of $10 a page. So he's going to pay them 130 bucks in the Depression for this comic book idea. So they actually had already given up hope of uh, Superman becoming a newspaper comic, which is what they wanted in the first place. So they agree, thinking nothing's going to happen to it. This also included a standard release form, which gives sole copyright ownership of the idea to DC, which was... Standard at the time period, I must iterate. That's going to become an issue because uh, Superman becomes really big. So, for instance, if you go to the, uh, yeah, if you've seen the original famous first cover of Action Comics number one, June 1938, um, it releases Superman smashing a car on the cover. 
Uh, shocking pretty much everybody, Superman becomes a hit almost immediately. Um, Action Comics very quickly started selling half a million copies a month, which was huge for that time period. And Superman immediately becomes the most popular comic book character in the world, regardless of genre. Uh, Superman becomes super popular, super quick, and pardon all the super puns, but eh, it works. It also pretty much single-handedly created a new genre, the superhero. Uh, We'd talked before, I mean, you've had things like, sorry, squeaky chair, Detective stories and, you know, cowboy stories and pirate stories and things like that. Pulp heroes. But they're not really super-powered. This is the first real super-powered superhero. Now, what is interesting, if you look at the panels of the original Superman comic, which I I have right there, uh, Superman is nothing like the character he'd later become. Uh, This Superman is very tough. He's cynical. uh, He wisecracks, kind of like a hard-boiled detective. Uh, he mocks and humiliates his opponents, often while crushing them. Uh, he's okay with killing people <laughs> in, in, the, in these comics. And it's very much an adolescent fantasy. Very much an adolescent male fantasy. Um, tons of strength. Pretty much the ability to do whatever he wants. Um, kind of resist the wiles of women. You, you can see his relationship he has with Clark... Uh, sorry, with Lois Lane. Uh, as Clark Kent is pretty much, you know, she's not really giving him the time of day, and then, like, he's, like, you know, whenever she tries to get kissy to him or whatever, he's like, no, I don't want to. Very, very adolescent. Like, you can get the girl, but you don't want the girl. Uh, very much righting wrongs. I, I, I cannot iterate that enough, but the the Superman of this time period is very much in the vein of the Great Depression. Uh, the sort of problems that Superman or Clark Kent is solving um, he's a champion of the oppressed, uh, devoted to helping those in need. That's actually what they literally say about him. Basically, Superman is, you know, he is going to help the oppressed, going to help the little guy. Uh, for instance, in the first issue, he saves a man from a lynch mob, frees a woman from death row, and you can see in the, in the slide, if the top left slide, uh, stops a woman from being beaten to death by her husband. Pretty much, uh, you know, Superman stops a man who's about to beat his wife, and then... He tries to stab Superman, but Superman is able to take him out. Uh, in the second issue, he crushes a conspiracy involving a U.S. senator, an arms company, and a lobbyist trying to get the U.S. involved in a foreign war. This is very much in the vein of the Merchants of Death idea, which you have after World War I. I don't think I mentioned that in class yet. Uh, Merchants of Death is this idea that World War I was started by rich you know, industrialists who wanted to make money off of selling arms and munitions and things like that. Very much a champion of the little guy versus unscrupulous capitalist fat cats. I mean, if you want to look at early Superman, it's nothing but like... I mean, there's an early issue where he like there's a mine owner who's not doing proper safety gear for his mine workers, and Superman saves them. That's very much what's in the play here. You don't really have super villains. Uh, you don't have like a, a Lex Luthor or... Uh, I can't really name any other Superman villains other than Lex Luthor. Maybe some of y'all can. Uh, very much what he's fighting against is, like, corruption. He's fighting against rich people screwing over little people. You know, yes, he's this adolescent male fantasy, but he's also this very, you know, little guy taking over everybody else. Almost immediately, he gets his own comic book. If you ever inside, you're going to see the super merchandising. Uh, he gets his own comic book. You can see, before he was in Action Comics, he gets his own comic book line. Um, he gets his own radio show almost immediately, and even a very expensive series of theatrical cartoons. Um, 
The Superman cartoons from the 30s and 40s are, like, super expensive. Like, they are very well done for this time period. Um, I would say they're comparable to Disney, if not a little bit nicer than Disney's stuff. Some of the rotoscope things they do are just kind of impressive what they do. So by 1940, which is barely two years after it was created, it's the biggest thing in media, like, period. Like, Superman is the biggest thing in media, and almost immediately there's going to be copycats. And now we get to talk about some of them there, copycats. Tons of Superman copycats. Pretty much every comic book company that existed wanted to make their own version of Superman. A, a funny example of this is Wonder Man. Now, Wonder Man is interesting. You, you see the slide right there. It was done, it was actually um, commissioned uh, in DC's own offices. They don't even know this is going on. It's a disgruntled uh, accountant. There's an, a, a disgruntled accountant who's not happy with what's going on with DC. I guess he doesn't feel like he's getting his. He sees how popular Superman is. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make my own version of that under my own company's nose. So he contracts out with Will Eisner. Uh, Will Eisner is a name that I'm not going to talk too much about. Uh, if you want to talk about him, that's that's a pretty good guy to talk about if you want to do a paper about him or something. Pretty important guy in the comic books world. Uh, he is actually contracted by this disgruntled employee to make Wonder Man. Uh, who is Superman? It's pretty much uh, Superman full stop. He, he doesn't have a cape and his colors are a little bit different, but he is Superman. Uh, Will Eisner ha later had a funny quote about this basically about saying how this was a horrible copycat. He said, quote, The artwork was bad enough, but the best one could say about the stories was that they were illiterate. <laughs> they were illiterate. I, I thought that was a funny thing he said. Uh, still, it sold a ton. Like, even though this is trite, this is bad, like, by all objective stance, this is a, a bad version. It's not like early Superman was, like, high art either. But this was this was just pretty much just total schlock. It sold quite a bit. Now another Superman copycat is actually done within DC, with the full knowledge of DC. Uh, that is Batman. As you see, Batman is first in detective comics. Uh, theoretically, Batman is a detective, uh, made by a guy by the name of Bob Kane. Bob Kane is the one who creates Batman. Uh, Batman is a knockoff of Zorro. Um, if you're familiar with the Zorro character, it is Batman. Like, uh, famous or, you know, aristocrat whose parents uh, are, you know, are killed at an early age, uh, puts on a mask and kind of runs around. That's, <laughs> he is Zorro. This is, this is white Zorro, in essence. Uh, also, theoretically, Batman's a little bit more into grit. Also, Batman's the first one who, like, really has super villains, uh, Batman's villains are, you know, the Joker and the Penguin and Two-Face and all them. They're, they're a bit better defined than Superman's villains ever were. And that's one of the reasons why Batman becomes more popular. Uh, Batman becomes not more popular than Superman, but he becomes, you know, popular, thanks in large part to that cast of villains and also a teenage ward named Robin. Uh, they bring in Robin pretty early. Robin is brought in pretty early to be with Batman. It's kind of like, um... Theoretically, this is something that children can relate to better, is that he has, like, a, a kid with him. Now, comic book company that comes around this time period that kind of goes a different way, but is actually one of the most successful, is Dell Comics. Uh, Dell Comics goes another way. They don't do superheroes. They license both Walt Disney and Warner Brothers characters into an incredibly successful line of comics. 
I, I should iterate, they are some of, if not the most successful comics during this time period, is the Looney Tunes and uh, Disney characters. Basically, these are you know kind of funny animal comics, very much in line for kids. Uh, this is like where the idea of like Huey, Dewey, and Louie, uh, Uncle uh, Donald Duck's nephews come about. I think Uncle Scrooge also comes about originally in these Dell comics. Like I said, these are not superheroes, but I'd be amiss not to mention them because they sold more than pretty much anything. Uh, Superman does sell it a little bit more. Also another car- a character I'm going to talk about in a second sells more. Uh, but God, Dell Comics, for the longest time, is one of the premier uh, sales when it comes to comic books. Another one you might have heard of, not that big of this time period, is Marvel Comics. Uh, Marvel Comics uh, is started around this time period in 1939, pretty much to be a ripoff of um, of <laughs> all the other more successful comic book companies. Marvel's not that big during this time period. Don't worry, Marvel gets bigger. Marvel's, Marvel's huge right now. Uh, so start if you go over one slide by a guy by the name of Martin Goodman. Uh, Martin Goodman, there he is on the left. Uh, that is the guy in charge of Marvel Comics. Uh, may, you know, mainly most of the direction, though, was under his teenage nephew, a guy by the name of Stanley Lieberman. Uh, Stanley Lieberman, there he is on the right. He starts at like age 17, 16, 17, working for his uncle's comic book company, uh, mainly doing a lot of story stuff. Like I said, you know, Mar- Martin Goodman, Stanley Lieberman, uh, both very Jewish guys. Uh, Stanley Lieberman would ultimately use the pen name of his first name, Stan Lee. So if you ever heard of Stan Lee, this is Stan Lee as a very young man. Uh, Marvel Comics, we go back to the first one, uh, they pretty much only have two heroes. They have two superheroes, uh, the Human Torch and the Submariner, uh, neither of which do much of anything. Uh, they are not very popular. Um, don't worry, Marvel's going to get a little, it's going to get quite a bit bigger later. Uh, so they don't move the needle that much, but uh, don't, worry about, don't worry about Marvel Comics and the Human Torch. He'll, he'll get his in a little while. Don't worry about that. However, if you go over over one more slide, you're going to see the most successful of all the copycats of Superman is Captain Marvel, which was done by Fawcett Publications in 1940. Uh, This was the most successful copycat of Superman during this time period, and also it sold better than Superman. Uh, This was the one that actually sold better than Superman, uh, became more popular than Superman for for quite a while. Uh, Captain Marvel's hook is that he's actually a small boy, it's actually a small boy who gets told by a wizard if he says this magic world word, Shazam, he will turn into this Captain Marvel character. So it takes the kind of adolescent, actually prepubescent fantasy even further. Like, you know, you're a little boy, but you know, everybody thinks you're, you know, you're, they can beat down upon you, but then you just say the magic word Shazam, and you turn into big, strong Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel was the most popular for quite a while. For quite a while, nothing sold more than Captain Marvel. Uh, Captain Marvel, and it's, by the way, I should mention, Captain Marvel, not done by Marvel Comics. Uh, it's done by Fawcett Comics, so don't get too confused with that. Uh, Marvel Comics is going to become more important later. Uh, it gets very sit- big, very successful, like I said. You can, you know, Captain Marvel with Wiz Comics, which is part of Fawcett's line. They introduce a million other Marvel characters. Uh, Miss Marvel... Um, like Uncle Marvel, there, there's tons of Captain Marvel characters, Marvel Jr. Um, DC ultimately sues. <laughs> they sue, says that the character was too super, uh, too similar to Superman. 
Uh, it wasn't. Not, I mean, he's another guy with a cape, you know, who has an emblem on his chest and can fly and have super strength. But there's a ton of them going around this time period. Uh, and the, you, know, you could argue there's enough differences between, like, you know, Billy Bastion saying the magic word Sazam versus Clark Kent running into a uh, telephone booth to whip out his uh, become Superman, whip off his clothes, become Superman. Uh, however, this lawsuit kind of lingered on for quite a while. Ultimately, uh, DC won the case in the 1950s. And to make a long story short, ultimately, Captain Marvel became bought by DC. The, the character of Captain Marvel uh, becomes owned by DC. We're going to talk about that in a second. That becomes weirdly common for a while. So whenever comic book publishers buy each other, they get their characters. In fact, nowadays, there's pretty much only two comic book publishers, and they've actually a lot of their you know well-known characters are actually uh, characters that are bought from other comic book lines. We'll talk about that in a second. So all this is happening in the late 30s and the early 40s, and almost immediately comics were highlighted as a blight on childhood. Uh, they were called cheap, degrading to the mind, uh, too violent, too sexual, etc. Uh, some publishers try to make comic books that are educational or real-life figures. Those go absolutely nowhere. Uh, th those go nowhere. <laughs> like, nowhere, nowhere. Now, what does kind of move the needle a little bit is comic books going to war. Uh, basically, when World War II comes around, within the first couple years of comic books being made, um, it's, it's no surprise that the comic books themselves start going to war, oftentimes literally. Uh, a lot of these guys, a lot of these comic book creators get drafted. Uh, Stan Lee, for instance, gets drafted in World War II, you know, fights the Nazis, that sort of thing. Plus, he's Jewish. And so, uh, since all the comic book guys were Jewish, they weren't fond of Hitler for obvious reasons. I mean, they don't know the extent of the Holocaust, but they know that Hitler's not being very nice to Jews and saying bad things about Jews. And so it's pretty natural for these comics to really find the Nazis' um, great villains. Um, instead of greedy capitalists, now Superman's fighting Nazis. Uh, Nazis become the primo villain in these comic books. Uh, the superheroes fight, and they uh, promote war bonds. That's something they very much do in this time period, is fight and promote war bonds. You can see in that picture right there. Superman and Batman, you know, knock out the Allies with bonds and stamps. Then you have Captain Marvel shooting Hitler with an honesty ray, which, that's just hilarious. Uh, Marvel really goes more than anybody else for this new, um, you know, World War II patriotic hero. If you go over one slide, you'll see Captain America. Uh, Captain America is a Marvel comic. Um, the first issue on the left is just a, a beautiful representation of World War II you know, call it propaganda, if you will. Basically, here's what we're about here. This is World War II. We're a bunch of Jewish comic book writers who don't like Hitler very much. So we're going to show Captain America punching the mess out of Hitler. That is a very, you know, common <laughs> refrain there. They have, you know, Captain America, you know, sneaking into Nazi headquarters and punching Hitler. Uh, issue two, they, they decide to do it again. Uh, basically, uh, Bucky is trapped by Hitler. Oh, Bucky is like uh, Captain America's Robin, I should say. And then here's Captain America busting in to... Looks like he's about to punch Hitler yet again. So, I mean, that pretty much says it right there. You, you cannot get more blatant than Captain America. And what's really ironic about this, though, is that um, Captain America actually comes out a few months before America enters into World War II. So, like, even before America's officially in the World War II... Uh, comic books are already saying, you know what, this Hitler guy, let's beat the crap out of him. Let's have, you know, the United States beating up the Nazis. 
it's it's only later once you know we enter the war with Japan that uh, the Japanese get shown quite a bit. Uh, they are shown very racistly. I should mention. Um, talk to me in another class about uh, World War II when it comes to America and Japan because there's a lot of not great propaganda out there. So even though Captain America is actually before the war, uh, pretty much he's emblematic of all the red, white, and blue superheroes that are all over the place fighting the Nazis. Uh, what does happen during the war is that comics are starting to be seen as something that wasn't just for children, but primarily for children. There's a difference there between something that is seen mainly for children versus something that is only for children. They're now seen as, like, mainly for children, mostly for children, but there is an instance of, like, you know, basically soldiers serving overseas read these comic books. They, they thought they were fun. It's, you know, it's, it's a vicarious release. And you start seeing that maybe some of the fans of comics are getting a little bit older. Perhaps the comics could mature with them. Now, that really comes into play into the 50s, but that's what we're going to talk about right now when we talk about seduction of the innocent. Seduction of the innocent... Uh, this fear that some comics are just going too far, they're too freaky-deaky, too sexual, too scary, uh, they are messing with children. Probably the most infamous of these, it actually starts out pretty nice, and then it gets kind of weird. Uh, let's talk about Max Gaines. If you go over one slide, you will see Max Gaines. There's Max Gaines, there he is. Max Gaines was actually born Max Ginsburg, so... Yet another Jewish individual. Uh, a lot of Jewish folks in the comic book world. He, that's just one of the things it is. Um, uh, he started a comic book company called All American Publications. Um, All American Publications was actually pretty successful for quite a while. It had characters like the Green Lantern and Wonder Woman. Uh, you've probably heard of Wonder Woman, probably heard of Green Lantern. Those were actually All American comics. Uh, they got bought out by DC. Whenever they got bought out by DC... Gaines still wants to be involved in the comic book world, so he starts to make what he calls educational comics. Educational comics, or EC comics. They stand for educational comics. Uh, educational comics started in the mid-40s, so like a little bit after the war, though, so we're talking like 45, 46. Um, he, he starts publishing what he calls educational comics. Uh, the number one line for them, if you go over one slide, you're going to see some of the titles, is Picture Stories from the Bible, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is the Bible in comic book form. And it's not done like with any subversion. They're not like, you know, there's no superheroes. They're not like making fun of Jesus. It's not like gags. It's pretty much straight up stories from the Bible done in a comic book. They also have like, you know, picture stories from science, picture stories from American history, uh, this type of deal that we're going to be educational. They have a few funny animal comics, not too many. Mainly very educational, very, you know, not going to be seen as scandalous. I mean, nobody can be mad about picture stories of the Bible where they, they don't make fun of the Bible at all. Like, this is done incredibly straight. Nothing sensationalized, not overly violent, not overly sexual, not, not overly funny. That's not funny at all. It's pretty much the Bible in, in picture form. So that's, that's, that's Max Gaines, you know, born Max Ginsburg. Um, what is interesting, not interesting, but this kind of changes in 1947 when he dies. Uh, in 1947, um, Max Gaines dies in a boating accident. He dies in a boating accident. And basically the company goes to his 25-year-old son. If you go over one more, you'll see William Gaines. Uh, William Gaines had just left the military in this time period. It's 1947. You know, he fought in the war. The war's over. He, you know, he, he was actually going to school to become like a chemistry teacher. He, he didn't really have too much of an of a interest in like comic books. He's not a particularly religious man, you know, even though he was 
even though his dad was publishing these uh, picture stories of the Bible, uh, Gaines is a bit more of an atheist. He's, you know, he's culturally Jewish, but not a practicing Jew. And so he's just left the military, and, and he saw that his dad's comics were were, were profitable. He, he couldn't deny that. They were profitable. I mean, they weren't making tons of money, but they were making a very consistent profit. I mean, there were, you know, oh, you like, oh, Timmy, you like comic books? Well, here's a comic book of the Bible type of sales. You know, a lot of, lot of well-meaning aunts and grandmothers bought uh, educational comics for their, for young little Timmy. Uh, but, but William Gaines thought these comics were boring. He's like, these are not very interesting. This is not very much into my world. Um, he likes other things. He likes pulp magazines. He likes science fiction. He's like, you know what? If I'm going to run this company, I want them to publish the stuff that I want. I want to get into more lurid genres. So he renames the company from educational comics to entertaining comics. He calls it entertaining comics, not educational comics. Keeps the old EC logo. It's still called EC so whenever I say, like, EC Comics, I'm usually talking about William Gaines's entertaining comics uh, as opposed to his dad's educational comics, but they kept the same EC logo. And so, you know, now that he's taken over educational comics, turned into entertaining comics, William Gaines starts publishing a ton of new comic books. Uh, new lines like Modern Love, which was cheesy romance. You have Amazing Stories and Weird Science, which is kind of science fiction about aliens and stuff like that. Uh, also, Tales from the Crypt, that's his horror comics line. talks about horror stories. If you go over one slide, you'll see a bunch of samples of EC comics from this time period, from the 50s. You know, very lurid, very, you know, I don't want to say gross, but like very sensational. I mean, look at some of these titles here. you got Tales from the Crypt, Two-Fisted Tales, Shock, Suspense Stories, you know, The, the Vault of Horror. Uh, weird science, crime suspense stories. See the one where the guy's holding the, the axe in a lady's head? That's right there in the middle. You know, the, the sort of the sort of very over-the-top, uh, not anything that his dad would have done. Uh, basically, he seemed to revel. William Gaines seemed to revel in just how outlandish he could make the comics. Um, EC becomes rather infamous for its gruesome stories. Uh, for its gruesome stories... Uh, they, they might seem quaint now, but some of them are rather infamous. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, you will see probably the most infamous of all these comics. It was a story called Foul Play. Uh, Foul Play came out in 1953. Um, it's a story about a baseball game. It's from the Tales from the Crypt uh, comic series, which was the horror comic series. As I mentioned, it is very much over the top. Uh, it's a story of like a baseball team that, uh, you know, they're, they're playing for the pennant. And uh, one player on the opposite team is, like, cheating on them, and he, like, poisons his spikes and runs into their best player, and their player dies, and they find out about it. So anyway, at the end of it, you can see from the cartoons right there, at the end of the story, the story ends with the rival baseball team basically taking their revenge by killing the player who killed their player and using his body parts to play a game of baseball. You'll see, like, they stretch his intestines out for the baseline, his heart, uh, his home plate... Uh, they use his head as the ball, his his arms and legs for baseball bats. Uh, yeah, and you can see the pictures too. So it's like it's not and like that that picture, especially that picture of the pitcher holding the guy's head, where like this you know with all the the gooky eye bits around. Uh, very infamous in this time period. You know, you might laugh and look at that and kind of laugh or think it's cheesy, but this was seen as like over the top, disgusting gore for the time. And uh, Game seems pretty content to publish whatever he damn well wants to. He's like, you know what? I'm going to publish. Damn the consequences. I don't really care. 
I like it. They started getting more popular. Um, you know, you start having baby boomers coming around, and that's actually why this kind of changes because baby boomers have now started to turn like eight years old, eight nine years old, and they're seen as like, ooh, they might be susceptible to these comic books. This is something that they probably shouldn't have. It's also seen that, like, you know, comic books were seen primarily for children, even though there are older readers of comic books. Um, you know, a child might read this and get really messed up. That's really what was impacted by a guy by the name of Frederick Wortham. Uh, he's a psychiatrist, and he writes a book in 1954 called Seduction of the Innocent. Uh, it's called Seduction of the Innocent. Basically, it says that comic books are the worst thing ever for children. He says all comics in general, and EC comics in particular. He, he really has a special place for EC being the worst thing out there. He, he does not like EC comics. He does not like Gaines. He thinks it's just too violent, uh, too much sexual images. And also says a lot of it is subliminal. He says there's a lot of subliminal images in there. Uh, for instance, I mean, these are some of the over-the-top instances that he says. If you go over to see examples of seduction... Uh, for instance, that's a cover of one of the EC comics. You can see a, uh, a, a man on a noose. Uh, another one from EC comics is where a woman's about to be stabbed in the eye. They don't show her actually getting stabbed, but still, that's pretty pretty nasty. Uh, then Little Mike Turk would come roaring back. Basically, a, a dead body being dragged behind a car. A couple of dead dra bodies being dragged behind a car. Remember, these are theoretically not being done for children, but it's in the medium that is seen as being done for children, if that makes sense. Like, it's not a comic book for kids, but they thought that all comic books were for kids. And, like, he also says that there's a lot of subliminal messages going on. So he's like, yeah, there's overt stuff, but he's like, there's also subliminal stuff. And he starts really going into, like, how there's violent and particularly sexual images uh, in these comic books that he's like, you know what, you know, you're, you're showing this to children, it's kind of um, messing them up, it's a little too much for them. Uh, some of these details are credible. Uh, for instance, uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, Wonder Woman, uh, actually the person who wrote Wonder Woman initially was like a, I think he was a PhD, he was a psychologist, a psychiatrist as well. Uh, there's like bondage undertones because one of the ways that Wonder Woman could be stopped is if she's tied up. And so there's all these like pictures of Wonder Woman being tied up and they're like, okay, that's, that's overly sexual imagery. Uh, that's something even the creator of Wonder Woman admitted. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, tying women up. That's, that was something that was definitely going to be in here. Uh, some of them are insane, though. Uh, for instance, my favorite one, I could not, I have a picture in a book of it. I was not able to scan it. I guess you can come to my office if you want to see this. He says that there's one picture in a uh, comic book where it shows the superhero's very you know, muscular shoulder. And he's like, that looks like a woman's pubic region. He's like, you know, if you, if you look at that shoulder, it looks like a lady's private area. And I'm like, that's just crazy. It, it looks like a shoulder. And so pretty much he's like, there's all these subliminal messages in here. Um, a, a special one that he has a lot of uh, amity for, though, is Batman and Robin. He says Bat and, Batman and Robin is encouraging uh, young people that homosexuality is okay because Batman and Robin are theoretically gay. Uh, for instance, if you look at that slide, uh, this is a panel from a Batman strip. It shows Batman and Robin theoretically in bed together. They, they just woke up. Ah, uh, come on, Dick, a cold shower and a big breakfast. And then down to the Batcave to repair the Batmobile. I'm way ahead of you. So this idea that they've, they've, they've slept in the same bed together and, like, you know, they're, there's no women around. It's just Batman and Robin living together in a big house by themselves. Uh, he says that's homosexual. Likewise, if you go over one more side, you're going to see another one of the most infamous comic panels of all time. 
I, this one this one had to be intentional by the comic book creators because it's okay, whatever. Basically, the supervillain is saying, you know, not only are you doomed, but so is everyone you've touched, and all the superheroes are thinking about their their uh, their girlfriends or wives. You know, Jean Lauren, I've signed her death warrant. I gave Iris West the kiss of death, Carol Ferris, and deadly danger, and Batman going, Robin, what have I done to you? So, I, I just find that amusing. There, there's no way the comic book creators, they, they, they knew what that was going to sound like. Uh, still, it was enough for basically uh, Senator Estes her favor to hold Senate hearings on the matter. He's basically a senator from Tennessee, um, you know, who, who's like, you know what, I, I'm afraid of what's going on with the children, we're fighting the Cold War. Basically, he gets Wortham to, uh, to come testify quite a bit. Uh, Wortham claims that uh, comics are more dangerous than Hitler ever was. You can see right there, there's Wortham, uh, you know, showing these, these samples of these horror comics, of, uh, of crime comics, horror comics, weird comics. They also call William Gaines to the stand. William Gaines is called in to basically testify about what's going on. Uh, Gaines tried to be kind of glib about it, and that did not amuse many senators, like one iota. They're like, you know, do you think this picture of a, of a severed head on the front of your comic book is gruesome? And he's like, no, no, it'd be gruesome if he held it up a little bit higher so you could see the blood dribbling from the bottom of the head. It's like, you can't see the neck, so yeah, it's not too gruesome. Uh, senators did not like that very much. Um, Gaines tried to be kind of glib about it, like I said, tried to be funny. Um, the senators did not care for it very much. Ultimately, they did decide, though, that, um, you know, comic books weren't necessarily, like, destroying children, but they should probably make some changes. Uh, by the time 1954 is over, when this whole uh, Senate hearing happens, uh, Gaines, most of his comic book lines had gone under because of the bad attention. And they're not really helped by the Comics Authority Code. If you go over one slide, you will see the Comics Code Authority. Comics Code Authority, uh, that was done by the comic book publishers themselves to basically self-regulate so the government wouldn't regulate them themselves. This happens from time to time. The, the video game industry does this in the 90s. Uh, video game ratings are not assigned by the government or anything. They're actually assigned by the video game makers themselves. Same thing with the Comic Book Authority. Uh, the Comic Book Authority forbade uh, certain words, like weird and strange, which kind of hurt Gaines, even though Gaines was one of the ones who was really behind this idea, because he wanted to make sure that like the government wouldn't come in and regulate him. Uh, also, get rid of a lot of graphic elements, get rid of like the sexual stuff, pretty much anything that Ernest Gaines' comics were about. Not Ernest Gaines. Ernest Gaines was a guy who wrote Lesson Before Dying. I'm sorry, William Gaines. Uh, William Gaines is like basically, you know, hey, a lot of my comics aren't going to be there, but I'll try to adapt to the code so something better can happen to me. Uh, a few comic book companies, I should say, don't get into the code. Uh, a few comic book companies don't get into the code. Uh, the, the main comic book company that doesn't do it is Dell Comics. Uh, Dell Comics doesn't do it for one reason. They make Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and, you know, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny comics. And they're like, there's no way we're going to be viewed as controversial. They're like, you know, we, we make, like, you know, they say that, oh, comics aren't necessarily for kids and you're regulating stuff. We, we do, you know, we literally do Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny comic books. We're going to be okay. We don't want to get into the self-regulation bit. Uh, there's also the idea that the comic book companies would have to pay dues for the, to, the, uh, to the code authority, basically the comics code authority, to make sure that they can regulate and things like that. Uh, Dell's like, we're never going to be controversial, so we're out. 
And I should mention Dell Comics is pretty successful for, you know, the 60s, well, through the 50s and 60s. Um, very much with the little kid comics, but they, they do okay. Now, even though Gaines is one of the founders of the Code, he actually comes into trouble with the Code, and actually he ultimately leaves the Code thanks to his 1956 comic uh, called Judgment Day. Uh, Judgment Day is actually a reprint of an older comic that talks about an astronaut going to an alien planet where there's two, like, robot races. It's like an alien world of robots, and they're identical except, like, they're different colors. There's, like, an orange one and a blue one. And, like, you know, basically the, uh, the orange robots treat the blue robots really, really bad. And they're, like, even though they're identical, they basically, like, really make life hard for the blue robots. And basically this astronaut from Earth comes and is like, hey, you know, we're going to let you join the, the Federation of Cool Planets, but until you fix this whole thing where you're being mean to the, to the blue robots, y'all, y'all have to leave. Anyway, it's, it's kind of schlocky. I mean, it's a story that had been done before. It, it's a non-too-subtle allegory for racism to begin with. Uh, that's not the controversial part. The The controversial part is the final panel, which you're going to see at the bottom right, uh, where he's black. Basically, the astronaut is black. It's basically making the point, like, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, he's a black astronaut who's dealing with all this stru- discrimination on Earth. You know, he's a black man. It's the 50s. It's not even the 60s, so things are not great for African Americans in the United States. And basically, the code doesn't like that. They says it's too much. They said, basically, Gaines, you got to make the astronaut white. They're like, look, you got to make the astronaut white. He's like, it doesn't make any sense if the astronaut's not black. If you make the astronaut white, it makes no sense. It ruins everything. Then they're like, okay, well, you got to remove the sweat from his, from his brow. That's too graphic. He's like, really? The sweat from, my, from his brow? So pretty much Gaines publishes the comic as is, which gets him kicked out of the code. Uh, this was the last comic he pretty much ever ran with EC Comics. Pretty much that was that. Uh, he gets you know, kicked out of the code. He no longer does comic books anymore. Don't feel too bad for him, though, because uh, he does just fine. If you ever one slide, you'll see what he later turns into. Uh, he makes Mad Magazine. He turns uh, one of his series of satire comics, which was called Tales Designed to Make You Mad. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make a magazine, not a comic book, but a magazine that basically is going to satirize everything and that, that later becomes Mad Magazine, which is not even arguably. It was bigger than any of his EC comics ever were. And there he is. There's older uh, William Gaines. So it's a very interesting life. Um, I talk quite a bit about William Gaines, but maybe if you want to write a little paper about him, well, that's okay. He's kind of a fun guy to talk about. So despite this, all the controversy, though, by the time we get into the 50s and the 60s in particular, um, the comic books world was actually kind of fading. The comic book business was kind of fading. People were looking more towards television and things like that. Uh, comics were kind of seen as a relic, something that wasn't very, you know, relevant anymore. And the business, I should mention, had never been especially lucrative outside of, like, Batman, Superman, and, like, Donald Duck comics. Like, outside of Batman and Superman, they weren't making a ton of money, and they actually weren't making that much money on the comics. They were making a lot more money from the radio shows and merchandising and things like that, uh, the comics themselves, they weren't really making that much money. Like, even, you know, EC Comics, uh, they're, they're more valuable now as collector's items as they, than they ever were whenever Gaines was publishing them. So, like, many comic book publishers actually start going out of business or start selling out in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s because there's just not really anything going on. The market is changing. Uh, meanwhile, at Marvel, though, uh, a now almost 40-year-old Stan Lee had been given a lot more creative control. Uh, his uncle had 
retired. And basically, Stan Lee, he's now like 40, almost 40 years old. He's like, you know what? I'm going to make more comics myself. I'm going to make more creative control. You know, we, we made these older comics. You know, we made Captain America, but, but even by this time, Captain America was seen as kind of passe. So he makes a few hires. The most important two hires he does is two artists. Uh, two artists, one by the name of Jack Kirby and the other one by the name of Steve Ditko. You can see the pictures of them right there. There's Jack Kirby on the left, uh, Steve Ditko on the right. Uh, Jack Kirby is very established at this time period. Uh, Jack Kirby, he's very established, known for his uh, over-the-top heroes. Uh, Jack Kirby's art is well-known for like his, his hands and, the, and like the muscular part of the heroes, but particularly his hands. Uh, for some reason, the Kirby hand is just known as like a very strong-looking hand, very known for this art style. If you look at the 60s comics, you're, you're probably looking at Jack Kirby's stuff. At this time, he's an older guy. He's very well-established. Uh, very known for its over-the-top heroes. Whereas somebody like Ditko, Steve Ditko is known for its like more neurotic and wimpy heroes. Uh, his, his stories tend to be more like the Twilight Zone, where it's kind of like a wimpy, wimpy protagonist. I wouldn't even call him a hero, but a wimpy protagonist, like, you know, kind of gets stuck into something, and they're, they're kind of neurotic, and they're kind of internalized. So, you know, Kirby writes the strongmen, and Ditko writes the weaker guys, you know, the neurotic type. Now, the first big splash with this newly revamped Marvel comes in 1961 with the Fantastic Four. Uh, the Fantastic Four was done by uh, Kirby and Lee. It's pretty much Kirby's baby. Uh, Stanley is somewhat involved with this, but it's mainly Jack Kirby's baby. Uh, it kind of breaks the mold of old superheroes. Uh, I, I should mention that basically it uses older comic, uh, Marvel characters, particularly the Human Torch. As we said, the Human Torch had been around since before, like, World War II. He's, like, a 20-year-old character in this time period. Uh, he gets revamped now that he's part of a family. Um, the Fantastic Four is a family. It's basically he and his sister, his sister's girl, uh, sister's boyfriend slash husband, and their other friend, the Thing. And basically, um, they're much more personable than other superheroes. They're a family. They don't really try to hide their identity, like, at all. Like, they, they don't have alter egos in the Fantastic Four. Pretty much the entire world knows who they are. And they live in a big skyscraper in the middle of New York. I, I should also mention they're the first ones to really, like, have their superheroes in a real city. You know, Superman's in Metropolis, Batman's in Gotham. The Fantastic Four and most Marvel characters are based on a real place, New York. Uh, they're also Jewish. Uh, the Thing, for instance, is Jewish. You might not think about that about The Thing, but yeah, The Thing is Jewish, just like... Um, Pretty much all the people who made this. I should mention Kirby and Ditko are both Jews, and Stanley's Jewish, so a lot of Jewish influence as well. Uh, but yeah, you'll have things like where the, the thing is wearing a, uh, a yarmulke, the, you know, the skull cap that Jews wear sometimes. And they're also a lot more personable than other superheroes. They have a lot more personality. Uh, they're not really stoic in the least. Like the Fantastic Four, you don't have a lot of stoicism. That's something you see from most of the early heroes is a sense of stoicism, you know, kind of unemotional. Uh, they can be whiny. <laughs> the Fantastic Four can be whiny. They, they kind of bicker amongst each other quite a bit. And also, it doesn't hurt that thanks to the atomic bomb, um, radio radioactivity slash mutation makes the greatest reason ever for a superhero to occur. It's just radioactivity. Uh, that's something you have now, because there's radioactivity, thanks to the atomic bomb. People are just beginning to understand it, so instead of saying, like, oh, you know, he's an alien from the planet Krypton, it's like, oh, yeah, he mutated, or, oh, yeah, yeah, radiation, radioactivity did it, radiation did it. The so Fantastic Four, as I said, it becomes quite popular early on. 
Uh, the first real big hit for Marvel, just kind of a tonal change than other comics that had come before. This is found in their next big comic, which is 1962's The Hulk, another Lee and Kirby collaboration. This one, Stanley's a little bit more involved with. Uh, once again, uh, radioactive, uh, but he also has a personality when he's Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner is very wimpy, he's a smart guy, but whenever you know radioactivity happens, he becomes the Hulk. And the Hulk is not really a, a hero, per se, um, but he does become popular. He, he kind of starts out as like an anti-hero, almost a villain of sorts. Um, he becomes very popular, but Lee finds it very hard to write stories for the Hulk. Um, he's very popular, uh, but the Hulk's not quite as popular as the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four were the kind of the mainstays at Marvel for quite a while. Uh, the Hulk is getting very popular, but Lee's like, it's hard to write stories for this guy because, you know, when he's wimpy Bruce Banner, that's not really thing to write home about. Likewise, when he's the Hulk, he's just yelling things like Hulk smash and he's beating things up, but he's not known for having like a thought pattern or a personality. So he's like, this is kind of hard to write for. You, you can tell if you read early Hulk stories, they're really struggling to figure out things for the Hulk to do or like, how can the Hulk be in peril if basically the Hulk can just smash stuff and be strong? So Lee said he wanted, Stan Lee said he wanted to make a more relatable superhero. Like, you know, he's like, I want, I want something that's kind of like me. Uh, you know, somebody who's, uh, you know, he, who, who doesn't win every time, who, who loses more than he wins. You know, just as much as he wins, he's going to lose. He's like maybe a teenager because, you know, a lot of our comic book fans, he starts reading the letters that the uh, fans are sending them. And they're like, they're teenage kids living in places like New York. And so basically, instead of going with, with Kirby, he goes with Ditko. Because remember, Ditko has a, is much better at drawing kind of like wimpy, neurotic characters. And the resulting comic book is the biggest hit since Superman and pretty much puts Marvel really on the map, and that's Spider-Man. Spider-Man also comes out in 1962. Like, I swear, Marvel was having a good time in the early 60s. Um, this is the biggest hit in comics since Superman. Uh, like, there, nothing was as big as Spider-Man whenever it comes out. Uh, Peter Parker, the hero of Spider-Man, he's not, he's a kid. He's a teenager. He's not really a hero. He's definitely not stoic. He's always short on money. He doesn't like get a date. And you can see this makes him super relatable for the audience. You see very much that like the audience is really kind of in tune with this idea of, you know, this Spider-Man who lives in New York and yet, you know, he's, he's trying to make money. He's, you know, he doesn't have a, a bat cave. He's not rich. He's not, you know a rich individual. He's a kid. He's a teenager. And it's seen as very popular, bitten by a radioactive spider. Once again, radioactivity helps out with creating a hero. Now, Spider-Man, as I said, it gets big almost immediately. He gets a cartoon show like the next day. Uh, merchandising happens almost immediately. There, there's stuff all over the place. Marvel follows it up with a whole host of new characters who all appear in the Avengers movies, so I don't really have to explain that to you um, who exactly they are. <laughs> Uh, there, there, there are tons of them. Like you can see on the slide, all, AKA all the movies now. Tons of these characters come out. Your Iron Man, your Thor's, uh, your Ant Man, all, all that sort of stuff. Your X Men, X Men come out as well. And what's surprising is how much these comics resonate with college students and young adults in the 1960s. You know, Lee is keenly aware that he's not just writing for children. He's like, look, kids want you know, you know, little children want simplistic heroes, but teenagers want heroes they can relate to. And not only that, a lot of many Marvel comics have like civil rights and public issue elements strongly in there. Uh, for instance, the X Men are a very thinly veiled um, an allegory for racism. 
basically they're like these mutants and they're being discriminated against. That's very much in the vein of racism. Uh, likewise, the character of the Black Panther, which interesting timing with the character of the Black Panther. Uh, there's no definitive way which to say which came first, the Black Panther Party or the Black Panther comic book. They pretty much came to national prominence within about a month of each other. So we don't know which one came first, the chicken or the egg. But you can definitely see that there is something going on there with basically talking about the whole black power element of the Black Panther. But also something Marvel does is they start publishing letters. They're one of the first comic book companies to publish letters from their readers. And I want you to look at some of these letters. You know, like uh, this one's from the Fantastic Four by a guy, George something or other, from, uh, from Bayonet, New Jersey. And he's basically saying how Fantastic Four is wonderful, the world's greatest comic book. Then you have, like, Sans Soapbox. I'm sure you saw this one on social media where it basically talks about how racism and discrimination is bad. Uh, Stanley actually becomes better known as a personality than a writer. Now, he wasn't doing that much writing in the first place, mainly just, like, talking about what started stories he wants and other people did the work. But now he becomes a personality. Uh, we talked about the switch from character to personality. Stanley becomes much better known as a personality in this time period, kind of embodying, you know, the Marvel idea. Um, they have, like, the Merry Marvel Marching Society, which was a kind of a fan club, but it was weirdly incredibly popular at college campuses. For instance, if you go over one slide, you will see a picture of Stanley at Princeton, basically talking with the students there. And it's ironic because uh, Stan Lee was usually one of the biggest speakers who would come to college campuses. Uh, one time he even outdrew Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, granted, Dwight Eisenhower was no longer president, but still, that's really impressive whenever you're this guy making funny books and you outdraw frickin' Dwight Eisenhower. Like I said, the, Marvel, the Mary Marvel Marching Society makes students feel, makes kids feel like they're part of something bigger. And this is really what I want to talk about with identity. Just this idea that, you know, these fans, they're able to say that this element of pop culture is something, like, central to their identity. You know, even bigger than hearing a president talk. You know, even bigger than all this stuff. We want to hear Marvel Comics talk. We want to hear comic books talk and come to it together. It's not too surprising if you go over one slide, you will see the first Comic-Con. Uh, the first Comic-Con, sadly, they didn't keep any, like, really good... Um, like merch from that or any like flyers from that. Uh, but you know, in 1964, you have the first comic con, very Marvel heavy. I should say some DC guys also show up, but it's mainly Stan Lee is there. Ditko comes to, to do some drawings. And this idea that like comic book fans are willing to meet up into something like a comic con. And then later on, you have the San Diego comic con in 1970 is the first San Diego comic con. Uh, that convention is easily now the largest convention in the United States of America, possibly the world. But, like, more people go to that Comic-Con than anything else. And although they might read it as a say that they are, like, outsiders, it's also a source of identity. They feel like they're, they're, they're part of something larger than themselves, even when they're doing something intimate and basic as reading a comic book. And the first comic Con was in New York City, and the guy who bought the first ticket, ironically, was the guy who wrote that letter to the Fantastic Four, that George guy from New Jersey. We'll talk about him in just a second. But comics, as you've seen, they've shown themselves to be rather adaptable to the times. I mean, like a comic book in the Great Depression was not the same as one during World War II, which isn't the same as one from 
the 1960, even though they might have the same characters. And it's also shown that it's enjoyed by more than children. And they're also crazy popular, as, as evidenced nowadays by the Marvel movies. And they're also evolved to incorporate a huge number of genres and levels of esteem. Uh, for instance, you have things like manga, which is Japanese um, comic books, or graphic novels, some of which are considered high art, are just, they're good novels. I mean, for instance, Watchmen appeared on um, Time Magazine's Top 100 Novels of the Past Century. That's, you know, novels, not just comics. And I really want you to talk about, you know, when you do your things, if you get asked about what it has to do with comics and identity. Does that make sense? Seeing yourself as part of a larger group because of an element of pop culture. Now, I should finally mention, uh, the first ticket ever sold to Comic-Con was to that George kid from New Jersey. Later on, he published a story called And Seven Times Never Kill Man. It was published in 1975 in Science Fiction Analog Magazine. Uh, yeah, that's George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, that character from Seven Times Never Kill Man was directly, this. it was about a race of these kind of like dog, furry creatures that live on a planet. Uh, that was directly responsible for the creation of Chewbacca from Star Wars. So like pretty much George R.R. R. Martin, if you go over one slide, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones is the alpha nerd of modern geekdom. He got his publish, his letters published in Marvel. He literally bought the first ticket to the first Comic-Con and was the reason why Chewbacca exists. So that's a lot of nerd street cred for you. So anyway, and that's huge to his identity. And so next class, we're going to talk about another identity that comes around kind of a little bit after comic books, but another thing where you could say that, you know, uh, adherence to pop culture can define one's life, and that would be rap music. So for that, this is Dr. Tully finishing up about comic books, and hopefully y'all enjoyed this one.